The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 273. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan, where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media buttons at my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, McClanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to mclanahanacademy.com, where it's always free to enroll. You get a free course when you do so. And, of course, I have eight courses available for purchase. That's a way to support the show and get something great for it. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also get your book, book plate there. Excuse me, book plate there. Just If you want my autograph on any of my books, just uh, purchase a book plate. I'll send it to you in the mail. You can stick it on your book and... It's a painless way to get an autograph. You can also support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com, clicking on that shop tab at the top of the page. It'll take you out to get all of my uh, gear with the Brian McClanahan Show logo on it. And of course, you're going to advertise the show and get something cool for it too. T-shirts, stickers, all kinds of good stuff. And you can always go to Learn True, Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com. Uh, it's uh, my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. I teach there with Tom. Brad Berzer, Kevin Goodsman, Jason Jewell, Bob Murphy, a whole lot of great instructors, a lot of bang for your buck. So if you uh, subscribe to Liberty Classroom through my affiliate link, learntruehistory.com, you also support the show that way. And always remember to share this show around on social media, rate it wherever you get podcasts. It's a great way to help spread the word. The more people that listen, the better. If you go to anchor.fm, you can also support the show there and you can leave a message uh, and you just click on that uh, send message button. And of course, uh, that way you can I can get a, an audio message from you. And I could include it in the show if it's a question, something like that. Then we can maybe uh, make that part of the show. So a lot of great ways to support the show and, uh, and uh, be uh, involved with the show. So uh, I do appreciate all the support and anything you can do to help the show out. And um, let's get started with the topic for the day. So I received this in an email um, not long ago, and it is a piece that was published at the Kirk Center by uh, Kyle Salmon. Now, Kyle Salmon is a lawyer in Pennsylvania. He is also one of the senior contributors to The Federalist. He also writes for a number of other conservative uh, online publications. Um, and this particular piece is a review of a book by Greg Weiner entitled Old Wigs, Lincoln I'm sorry, Burke Lincoln and the Politics of Prudence. Now, I find this review fascinating for a couple of reasons. Number one, one of the ongoing debates in conservatism is between the paleoconservatives and the neoconservatives. And uh, a lot of that has to do with Abraham Lincoln. Many people don't know the story, but uh, back in the 1980s, in fact, before Ronald Reagan became president, when he was in the transition period, he thought about appointing Mel Bradford to a position in the general government, the National Endowment for the Humanities. Mel Bradford would have been the, uh, the chair for that. 
And uh, his nomination stirred a lot of uh, hatred among the neoconservatives. In fact, uh, the neoconservatives, led by the Crystals and Bill Bennett, blocked his appointment. And at that point, you basically had the neoconservative ascendancy in the Republican Party. And why they did it is because Mel Bradford had written some pretty disparaging things about Abraham Lincoln. Bob Bradford was a Southerner to the core. Mel Bradford did not believe that Lincoln was a great president. Mel Bradford, in fact, thought that Lincoln was an awful president and that he should not be celebrated. And here you have one of the fundamental disputes between these two factions. It comes down to Abraham Lincoln. Is modern American conservatism Lincolnian or is modern American conservatism something else? Are we attempting to, to conserve the revolution of 1861 or are we attempting to conserve the revolution of 1776? More appropriately, not the revolution of 1776, but the American War for Independence. What are we seeking to conserve? Is American conservatism by default liberalism? I mean, is there really even an American conservative tradition at all? I mean, these are big fundamental questions. Uh, when I wrote with uh, Clyde Wilson, Forgotten Conservatives in American History, we attacked this stuff. We, we really tried to, to discuss uh, these particular issues. Um, and we tried to uh, explain them. What is American conservatism? Is it simply liberalism uh, that's now been called conservatism? Or is there an American conservative tradition? And I think both, of course, Dr. Wilson, who is my advisor, and myself come down on the side that there is an American conservative tradition. You have to find it in the South. It's the only place you had it, in fact. Now, there were those, there would be those that would say, no, no, no. What about John Adams? What about the uh, Congregationalist positions from the North that were very conservative, what we would call conservative in terms of social order. Well, what about it? I think what you can say about the Congregationalists is they were, no, they were by no means conservative. In fact, they were radical reformers in many ways. The conservatives were the Orthodox Christians. The conservatives were the, were the Orthodox Anglicans. The conservatives was, were the Orthodox Church. The Puritans we're seeking to purify the church and make it more Protestant. They wanted to abolish Christmas, for example. Couldn't even celebrate Christmas. That was, in many ways, a harbinger for some of the reform movements that would hit America. Now, we can look at that, back at that and say, well, I mean, the, the, uh, the Puritans certainly had some views on, say, social order and morals and virtues that we would admire today, when you look at the complete destruction of the family in American society, when you look at the complete destruction of traditional roles in American society, well, I mean, the Puritans sound like they're, they're on the right side, and of course they would be compared to modern American society. But were they conservatives back in the 17th century, or the 18th century, or the 19th century? The Puritanical Congregationalist Church in New England gave away to the Unitarians and then gave away to basically a secular religion of government, of reform, of progressivism. 
So uh, it's problematic to place New England as the heart of American conservatism. We know John Adams, of course, was a monarchist, essentially. I mean, John Adams uh, really did believe that what America needed, I mean, he was a Republican, but America needed something else. It needed a very strong central authority. He admired the British Constitution. He admired uh, the British political order. What he didn't want was the corruption from it. And, of course, this is where Alexander Hamilton said, no, no, it's corruption that makes it beautiful. So the question becomes, what is American conservatism? You have Russell Kirk, of course. The Kirk Center is named after Russell Kirk. And Russell Kirk, uh, in his conservative mind, was very eclectic in who he brought into the conservative movement. He did not include Abraham Lincoln, however. He did include John Adams. Lincoln might have been a conservative in the Republican Party in the 1850s, but Lincoln was by no means conservative. So I want to read this piece, and I want to get into what's going on here. But the most important thing you can gather from this is that Lincoln really is the pivot by which you can measure as someone a neoconservative or someone a paleoconservative, but not just that. Lincoln becomes the symbol of American conservatism in the 20th century and incorrectly becomes the symbol of conservatism in the 20th century. Because what these conservatives who follow Lincoln are seeking to conserve is not conservative at all. It was a radical restructuring of America. It was, as Eric Foner has recently written in his book on Reconstruction, a second founding. Lincoln was involved in a second founding. And whether these conservatives like to say it or not, they might as well just say, look, we don't believe in the original Constitution. We don't believe in federalism. We don't believe in any of that stuff. If we're going to believe in Lincoln, none of that stuff matters. So this is a piece, um, again, a book review of that book, Old Whigs, Burke, Lincoln, and the Politics of Prudence by Greg Weiner, written by Kyle Salmon. And so he begins thus. More books have been written about Abraham Lincoln than any other man, except only Jesus Christ, who all must admit is a special case. That is a boon to readers eager to learn about our 16th president. I don't think so. I think it's an awful thing. Why do we keep writing about Lincoln? There's nothing really to learn about Lincoln. There's nothing... Look, I wrote about Lincoln in my Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America, not in a very positive way, so I could say, well, I contributed something to this. But, of course, he was just one chapter. Maybe we should write more books about people that don't get written about. Maybe there should be more books about Jefferson Davis, for example. I mean, don't we have something to learn about Jefferson Davis? Or some of the other presidents that don't get any ink spilled on them, or at least very much. What about John Tyler? Shouldn't we learn more about John Tyler? What about Martin Van Buren? Isn't there something to learn about Martin Van Buren? I mean, Lincoln is only popular because of the war. A war that Lincoln could have avoided if he really was interested in, quote, the politics of prudence. But Lincoln was not interested in that. And so this is where I'm actually going to just to completely destroy Greg, Greg Wiener's. Now, I haven't read the book. I'll admit that. But if Wiener's position, as I get it from this review, is what I think it is, then he's essentially saying that Lincoln's attempt to preserve the Union was the politics of prudence. 
that it was somehow a revolution being wrought by the South, but that's not what was actually happening. So I could say we should write more books about other presidents. I mean, why not? What about, I mean, take your pick of, of uh, maybe the late 19th century presidents. What about Rutherford B. Hayes? Why don't we write about Rutherford B. Hayes? What about Chester Arthur? <laughs> I mean, I'd rather read a book about them any day of the week than Abraham Lincoln. But you see, it's the laser beam focus on Lincoln, particularly from conservatives who want to attach modern conservatism to Abraham Lincoln. And I think in some ways they're right. Look, I mean, modern conservatism has been overrun by Lincolnians. They're correct about this. There's nothing incorrect about that. But it's not really conservatism. So I digress. Let me continue with the piece. It presents a daunting challenge to any scholar interested in writing something new about the man. In old Whigs, Burke, Lincoln, and the politics of prudence, Greg Weiner has done just that, detailing Lincoln's political philosophy alongside that of Anglo-Irish parliamentarian and scholar Edmund Burke in an effort to get the meaning and importance of prudence in political life. Well, this is kind of like Lincoln making a new discovery that um, secession was illegal and somehow the Union was indissoluble. Great political discovery. I figured this out. Look at this. <laughs> See? I mean, I discovered these things. Is Lincoln really that interested in... I mean, he even says at the end, well, Lincoln wouldn't have called himself a conservative. No one in the, no one in the United States in 1861 would have called Lincoln a conservative. Now, in some ways, you can look at this, and I know, for example, Kevin Goodsman, when I've said Jefferson was a conservative, he, he gets really fired up about that and says, no one called Jefferson a conservative at the time. This is true. Jefferson was a reformer. Where he was conservative in our own mind is his commitment to federalism, which was a conservative principle. Now, Jefferson, uh, in, in Goodsman's book um, on Jefferson, his recent book, um, he essentially outlines where Jefferson could be considered a conservative. But I think this is the beauty of Jefferson in many ways. He is something to everyone. Now, could Lincoln be that? I guess so, because the left can claim him on several things, and so can the right. So maybe Lincoln is that individual as well, but it's not really prudence that we're looking at here. It's waffling political craft. Wiener, a professor of political science at Assumption College, there's part of the problem. He's a professor of political science, which is uh, the poor man's historian devised a difficult task for himself in defining a concept so nebulous as prudence. Aristotle called it, quote, right reason applied to practice. But what is right reason? St. Augustine called prudence the science of what to desire and what to avoid. And St. Thomas Aquinas used both of these definitions in his longer discussion of the topic. But even that great thinker could not give a simple rubric of prudence. It is likely that no brief definition could completely comprehend the virtue, though all Though, I'm sorry, through these all point us in the right direction. Though these all point us in the right direction, excuse me. For Edmund Burke, the concept meant a moral rather than a complexional timidity. That is to say, Burke urged caution not out of cowardice, but out of humility. His conservatism was grounded in modesty and in recognizing that neither he nor any man had all of the answers. In the faces of uncertainty, prudence dictates hesitating before making a drastic change. Now, if we're going to define Lincoln that way, if if Greg Weiner's going to define him that way and Kyle Salmon's going to define him that way, there is no way you could say that Lincoln was any of this. I mean, he tries here. He 
He tries to get into that and say, well, this is, this is how Lincoln was. But I'm going to say, before I even read that, Lincoln wasn't modest. Lincoln wasn't humble. And Lincoln did believe he had all the answers. In the face of uncertainty, prudence dictates hesitating before making a drastic change. Lincoln didn't hesitate at all. From the time he took office, he was trying to provision Sumter, and that meant war. Winfield Scott told him this. If you provision the fort, you're going to have war. Everyone told him. The prudent people were those in the cabinet who said no. They were the prudent ones. Now, he's going to get into why this, well, this doesn't apply to Abraham Lincoln, because he had to act here. Yet maddeningly for those in search of a precise guide of life, Wiener tells us that prudence also demands bold action at times. Burke at times demanded such boldness from his country's government, especially when it meant confronting the regicides of revolutionary France. Now, what he's going to start doing here, what Salmon is going to start, and of course Wiener is going to do, is say that somehow the South were the same as the revolutionaries of France. That is the greatest stretch you could ever make. In fact, the conservatives in the United States at the time of the war were saying that it wasn't the South that was following a revolutionary position. It was the North. They were the French revolutionaries. They were the ones who were completely upsetting the American order. They were the ones who were trouncing on the Constitution. So how could Lincoln be prudent here? Prudent would be to say, you know what, we're going to let the South go in peace. That would be prudent. That would have been the conservative thing to do. Salmon continues, simple caution might call for a negotiated peace with the Jacobins. Prudence demanded unyielding resistance to the destructive effect of the French Revolution. There's no comparison between the French Revolution and the South. There is a comparison between the French Revolution and the North. The reign of terror really was in the North, not the South. It was Lincoln who was arresting people and putting them behind bars for opposition to his administration. It was Lincoln who was waging war on the South, destroying the conservative order of the South. That was Lincoln. It was Lincoln who was unleashing a revolution on the United States. It was Lincoln who was centralizing power in Washington, D.C., just as would happen, of course, France always had, the political culture there is always centralist. But it was the centralizers who were going to win out. It was Lincoln that was doing these things. Lincoln. Simple might call, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Lincoln, too, mixed caution with uh, with. Uh, prudence when, or I'm sorry, with, uh, with ardor when faced with the challenges of secession and civil war. Even before his election, Lincoln's prudence separated him from other abolitionists. He argued against slavery logically and effectively in his debates with Stephen Douglas in 1858, but understood the political necessity of moving gradually toward the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal for Lincoln in the 1850s was prohibiting slavery in the territories. The ultimate goal was not abolishing it in the southern states. Lincoln never had that as the ultimate goal. Now, I think all I think they did understand that abolishing it in the extension of slavery, you're going to maybe lead to its extension in the southern states. But is Lincoln the abolitionist when he tells Alexander Stevens in 1865 that slaves would root hog or die after abolition? He didn't care. Is that prudence? Or is that just votes? 
Lincoln, like Burke, also knew when prudence demanded he act drastically. Gradual abolition was fine in peacetime, but when the dispute over slavery erupted into war, the political and moral calculus changed. Well, did the dispute over slavery erupt into war? Or how about the quest for power erupted into war? Maybe that was a more accurate statement. Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation was a bold stroke, one that the Lincoln of a few years earlier might have decried. But this too, Wiener writes, was prudence in action. Prudence, he tells us, demanded accommodation, but not surrender to circumstances. I mean, this is just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, even <laughs> Look, Benjamin Robbins Curtis said that by doing this, you are completely running over the government by issuing this Emancipation Proclamation. This was a horrible thing to do. Legally. And it destroyed the original constitutional order. Because it gave the executive branch unconstitutional powers. And those unconstitutional powers to best subdue the enemy have been used since then to do all kinds of horrible things in the United States. But before I get into that, I'm going to take a brief break. I'll be back in just a minute. Let me talk to you for a minute about McClanahan Academy. I know at the beginning of this particular podcast or this video, I talked about McClanahan Academy. But let me go into a little more detail about why I think you should sign up for it and why, and why I created it. First, a little bit about me. I have a PhD in American history from the University of South Carolina, and I've taught in the college environment for 20 years. And I've seen college students get worse over time, the curriculum get worse, and students are being indoctrinated more than educated now in our higher education system, whether it's high school or college. So I wanted a counterweight to that. And this is why I created the McClanahan Academy. Now, first, it's always free to enroll at McClanahan Academy. You sign up. It's free. And I give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, when you do sign up. So it's a great way to get an introduction to what I do. But I've got eight courses for sale there and more forthcoming. All of these courses are designed to give you the non-PC version of American history, to take the red pill, so to speak. And I've got two courses in particular, my U.S. History Survey courses, which are designed for homeschoolers. So if you're a homeschooler and you want a good curriculum, and uh, my family has homeschooled all of our children from the beginning, and you want a solid history curriculum, that's why I designed the United States History 18, to 1865 and 1865 to present. You've got enough material, you've got lesson plans, you've got uh, tests, you've got reading material, you've got reading seminars, you've got 36 weeks, if you take them, buy them both, you've got 36 weeks of material, and it can be used as a high school history curriculum, or if you're just a lifelong learner, you can use it otherwise. But it's a great way to get a real history education devoid of Marxism and progressivism and political correctness. So sign up at mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. Again, always free to enroll, and I'll see you there. All right, we're back here on this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show talking about Lincoln and Burke and the ridiculous assertion that somehow Lincoln was a Burkean. Um, so let me continue with this piece by Salmon. Lincoln, like Burke, also knew when prudence demanded he act drastically. And I, and I got into this, right? So uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm backing up here. But again, let me reiterate, the Emancipation Proclamation was not a conservative move. And prudent, this is not a prudent move. It's prudent. I mean, if you want to say, well, look, this is going to save the Union. At what cost? The Union is destroyed. The executive power 
expanded so rapidly during the war that we've never put it back in the in the can where it was before. This is not prudence. This is dangerous. And you can say, well, the Emancipation Proclamation was a great thing. Certainly ending slavery is a great thing. No one's gonna no one's gonna say that. But the way it was done here, this is what Benjamin Robbins Curtis says. Look, I am all for emancipating slaves, but you can't do it this way. It's illegal. And you're going to create all kinds of problems in the future. Benjamin Robbins Curtis was an abolitionist who said the Emancipation Proclamation was illegal. Salmon continues, both Burke and Lincoln had strong beliefs in right and wrong, but both also recognized the constraints placed upon them by their respective constitutions. In Burke's case, the unwritten British Constitution demanded both more and less of its subjects than America's written document. Nothing was forbidden if Parliament and the monarch agreed to it. But that freedom of action was weighted down with centuries of tradition. Its unwrittenness demanded more deference and self-control. In America, on the other hand, the restraints were clear. But the possibilities of amendment were nearly endless, as the 13th Amendment showed in the last year of Lincoln's life. Um, The possibilities. This is a conservative, quote-unquote conservative, writing this. Look what we can do. We can amend it. We can can make the Constitution anything we want. Uh, I'm not certain if Salmon knows about um, Lincoln's original 13th Amendment, which would have made slavery permanent. In the South. And Lincoln, as Daniel Crofts has, I think, conclusively shown, it was Lincoln's amendment, not Corwin's amendment. It was Lincoln's amendment. Lincoln was certainly fine with keeping slavery where it was in the South. And you can say, well, that actually proves his point. He's being prudent here. I mean, okay. But Lincoln was also preparing for war and ready to go to war. Prudence would have had a negotiated peace with the South. But that's not what Lincoln wanted, because that would have destroyed, in his mind, his administration. The Republican Party would have been pointless at that point. Who needs the Republican Party? There's no South to demonize anymore. If they control the Western Territory, there's no issue in the Western Territories. The uh, the issues of uh, the Republicans might be ascendant, or maybe the Whigs come back and they control their political economy. There's no South to block that stuff anymore. So, I mean, what's... Lincoln's a one-term president at that point. Both men saw political ideas as spanning the generations. Burke's encapsulization of this is more well-known and has become the bedrock of at least one school of conservative thought. In his reflections on the revolution in France, Burke wrote that society becomes a partnership not only between those who are living, but between those who are living, those who are dead, and those who are to be born. That view of time and tradition necessarily leads to a prudent conservative outlook. But Lincoln never believed in that. Now, he says, for Lincoln, the idea of an intergenerational contract was noted in his second inaugural address, but signaled even more clearly, according to Wiener, in his 1838 Lyceum Address. In that speech, Lincoln preached of the need for a deep respect for the law, even as he argued for changing it. A deep respect for the law. This is where Lincoln's the hypocrite and where anyone who thinks that Lincoln had deep respect for the law is almost a lunatic. If Lincoln had a deep respect for the law, we wouldn't have had the war. And of course, this is from Lincoln's address. Let every man remember that to violate the law is to trample on the blood of his father and to tear the character of his own and his children's liberty. Let reverence for the laws be breathed by every American mother. 
To the lip-sync babe that prattles on her lap, let it be taught in schools and seminaries and in colleges. Let it be written in primers, spelling books, and in almanacs. Let it be preached from the pulpit, proclaimed in legislative halls, and enforced in course of justice. Did Lincoln really believe that? No. Because if he did, again, there wouldn't have been a war in 1861. A deep appreciation for the law would have led him to avoid war. Prudence would have led him to avoid war. So Salmon continues, this is a deep devotion to the law, clearly, but even in their similarities, Burke and Lincoln highlight differences between them and these statements. Burke's traditional contract is not one of anyone would think of as written down. Like his constitution, his intergenerational compact is informal and unwritten, known by feel more than by rote. Lincoln, contrarywise, is a son of a nation built on its written constitution, as reverence to that writing, not to an informal understanding of principles that he encouraged in his address. But Lincoln, of course, revolutionized the revolution in 1864, did he not, with the Gettysburg Address, which becomes the bedrock of these conservatives that love Lincoln. Is that not? I mean, this is where we get the proposition nation that neoconservatives like to champion, that the Declaration is really the founding document. And Lincoln, um, if he believed in the written Constitution, would not have engaged in the war. It would have been impossible. Salmon continues, this is not the only difference between the two, and Wiener devotes a section of his book to that point. Lincoln, as far as we know, never explicitly claimed the legacy of Edmund Burke. Of course he wouldn't, because he wasn't a Burkean. Nor would he have likely been considered especially conservative in his time. He wasn't. Certainly his political opponents did not see him as such. White Southerners feared Lincoln's supposed radicalism so much that they began seceding from the Union even before he took office. Um, because Lincoln had made statements that would not be in line with conservatism. The South, this is the weird thing about these conservatives too, white Southerners, slave owners, rebellion, as he says later. I mean, are these people social justice warriors or are they conservatives? I mean, this is, this is a, a, a serious question. Why do they have to engage in the rhetoric of the left? Because they think somehow it gives them cover, this is the rhetoric of the left. These are things the left says. This is identitarianism. That's the left. And yet their fears are disproved once the war began. Really? The head of a radical party, Lincoln, did ultimately practice a Burkean prudence as administration of the executive branch. He did? He did? Are you, are you serious? I mean, has this guy read anything about Abraham Lincoln? A Burkean prudence? While, as Wiener notes, Lincoln's beliefs were more grounded in universal theory than Burke's were, his application of those theories showed the restraint and modesty necessary to preserve the broad coalition working to defeat the slave owners' rebellion. I mean, this is just sad that a quote-unquote conservative would scribble this kind of drivel. There's nothing conservative about Lincoln's prosecution of the war. There's no restraint there. No modesty there. It's 
There's no Berkey imprudence in his administration of the executive branch. This was a transformational executive branch that created the modern monster, helped create the, not necessarily created at that point, but helped create the modern monstrosity that we know. Every president looks back to Lincoln. They don't go back to Washington. They don't go back to Jefferson or John Tyler or Zachary Taylor. They don't go back to any of those presidents. They go to Lincoln because Lincoln's the guy that established all of these things. Unconstitutionally, but he did it anyways. Burke and Lincoln came from different times, different nations, and somewhat different political traditions. Is it a stretch then to write them off as practicing a similar form of political prudence? Wiener answers the question by arguing that that quality was so important to both as to subsume other less important differences. His point is well argued. In doing so, he follows Russell Kirk, whom he quotes for that proposition that Lincoln, despite the rebels' claims to the contrary, was deeply interested in order. Wiener says Lincoln was a man of order, not a man of theoretic dogmas and politics. In his immediate object, the preserving of the Union, he succeeded through the ancient virtue of prudentia. He did? Are you serious? <laughs> Lincoln could have saved the Upper South from seceding. He could have stopped the bloodshed if he had just done it. This is, again, Croft saying, we had all these guys that weren't interested in secession in the Upper South. All Lincoln had to do was stop it. He could have, but he didn't because he wasn't prudent. Lincoln was bloodthirsty. A man's temperament informs our view of the theory behind it. Lincoln and Burke both present to the world an image of prudentia, despite underlying differences in their political dogmas. Wiener's work here is briskly paced but packed with ideas, giving the reader a new look of these two well-examined lives and the ancient virtue that united them. There's no uniting Burke and Lincoln. This is just complete garbage. Uh, you could say that Lincoln was uh, more of a Tom Paine than an Edmund Burke, uh, whose disdain for American conservatism led him into the war. Again, though, this fits with modern American conservatism. It fits. And here's why it fits. Because, again, modern American conservatism is so tied to the Lincolnian myth, to Lincolnian nationalism, that it has to denounce real American conservatism, which was the South. It has to denounce that. It has to denounce John C. Calhoun and John Randolph of Roanoke, who, by the way, Russell Kirk included in his conservative mind but not Abraham Lincoln, not even Alexander Hamilton, because Kirk did not think either one of those individuals represented American conservatism. Um, interestingly enough, Lincoln in 1865 may have been interested in trying to form a, quote, conservative party in the United States after the war was over, but of course he's assassinated and that doesn't happen. But maybe... If he's not killed, he forms a coalition of former Whigs, former Southern Whigs, Northern Whigs, people that were trying to arrest this radical push during Reconstruction. Maybe. I'm not so certain Lincoln could have pulled it off, but there is maybe something to this. So in that way, maybe he would have been conservative. I don't know. But regardless, Lincoln as conservative, Lincoln as Burkean, Lincoln as prudent, just falls apart under the pure facts of the day. Lincoln was none of those things. 
Lincoln could never be considered any of those things, and to argue otherwise is extremely dangerous. But it's exactly what the conservative movement, Conservative Inc., wants to do. They want to make Lincoln their guy because, of course, that attaches all of that reform to them. And essentially what they're trying to conserve is the second founding in America. They are more Eric Foner than uh, American conservative. Eric Foner, last time I checked, is not a conservative. Essentially, they would agree with Eric Foner. Yeah, we had a second founding. Look at this. Look at all these things we did. And now we're conserving that. And again, using the language of the left doesn't do anything to advance your position. When I say the language of the left, it's treason, uh, slaveholders' war, uh, these type of things. Slaveholders' rebellion. This is the language of the left. So if you're going to use their language, just be a leftist. Seriously. I mean, there's there's no... Why even try to argue? You're giving the field. You're saying, you know what? You're wrong, but here, you play on this field and you can have it all and I'll I'll just sit in the stands and watch and say, well, it's... Well, you're not doing it right, but you're not out there playing anymore because you just give them the field. It's, I mean, basically what we have here are conservatives who want to sit in the stands and criticize... Uh, what the left is doing while they can't play themselves because the left won't let them. When you give the field, you create a climate where you will have no input and no impact whatsoever. And you're giving the field by being pro-Lincoln. You're giving the field and saying that somehow Lincoln is a conservative. He's not. He's not. He never was. He might have been a conservative within his own party, but he was not a conservative for the men of his time. Now, um, Lincoln certainly wasn't a radical, but he wasn't a conservative. And if you look at the founding tradition, if you look at the founding documents, Lincoln did not believe in any of that. If he did, he wouldn't have attacked the South and waged war on the South and been so against compromise in 1860 and 61, telling Republicans not to support any compromise measures. Is that a man of prudence? Compromise. Henry Clay was more of a conservative than Abraham Lincoln. Compromise would have been prudence. But no, no, not according to Salmon and Wiener, who would say that um, the fact is, you know, Edmund Burke thought we had to get rid of the, the French revolutionaries. Were you not being the revolution? Were you not assuming that position? Of course you were. So this, I mean, why anyone would pick up this book and read it now? If you've listened to this podcast, I don't know. Um, it's just disheartening to see, quote-unquote, conservatives fall all over themselves trying to defend the indefensible. In this particular case, Abraham Lincoln's bloody prosecution of a war that resulted in a million casualties. Plus, it destroyed the Constitution. It destroyed the original Union. It created a second founding. It's by no means conservative in any way on, under the sun. And yet, this is how we're consistently told Lincoln uh, saved the Union. Lincoln conserved. Lincoln was the conservative. Just a bunch of junk. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show. (laughs) 